0: Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Thursday, December 7th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn Stanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. We have a very packed show today, so please stay tuned. It's day 62, and we enter the third month of Israel's genocidal attacks. Where do I even start? Uh, 350 Palestinians were killed in the last 24 hours in Gaza. As of this morning, 17,177 Palestinian men, women, and children have been killed in Gaza by the Israeli military since October 7th. More than 46,000 have been injured. However, these numbers don't include thousands of people still being reported missing under the rebel or those who have died from disease and lack of access to medical treatment under Israel's complete siege. The Israeli military has expanded its ground invasion into the southern Gaza Strip, ordering Palestinians sheltering in five United Nations schools to leave. That was yesterday, uh, while carpet bombing entire neighborhoods across southern Gaza overnight and into today. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza evacuated most patients and staff in the Kamal Adwan Hospital in Jabalia refugee camp, The UN said the the, the hospital largely stopped functioning and ceased admitting new patients. Out of 24 hospitals in the northern Gaza Strip, only two small hospitals are still able to admit patients. Ashraf Al-Kedra, the spokesperson for the health ministry in Gaza, said that the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital in Gaza City, quote, has lost its capacity to treat patients in the face of the large number of injuries And the wounded are bleeding to death. The United Nations World Food Program said that households in northern Gaza are, quote, experiencing alarming levels of hunger. At least 97 percent of households in northern Gaza have, quote, inadequate food consumption, with nine out of 10 people going one full day and night without food. Yesterday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced that he has invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter. This invocation means that the Security Council will hold a special session ostensibly to address Israel's attacks on Gaza. But of course, it's unclear what will come of this Security Council session since the U.S. holds veto power and can use it on Israel's behalf. We'll get more into all of this. We'll have a very full show uh, today, uh, including a discussion with John on reports that Israel is planning or attempting to flood the tunnel network under Gaza, as well as the gains by the Palestinian resistance against the Israeli army and much more. But first, Asa has some new reportage on the latest revelations about how Israel killed Israeli citizens on the 7th of October. Asa, please tell us more.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Nora. Since the 7th of October, a steady stream of testimonies has been flowing out of Israel, showing that a large number of the hundreds of Israelis who were killed during the Palestinian resistance assault on the military bases and settlements along the frontier with Gaza were actually killed by Israeli airstrikes, tank shelling and the occupation forces generally chaotic response now you as readers of the electronic intifada as well as our regular listeners and viewers will know a lot about this story already and we've been covering it for a while now and a couple of weeks ago we published this long investigative piece that I wrote uh, about all this story and it rounded up most of the evidence that had emerged to date at that point point. Now, that piece was based on more than a month of intensive research, which involved almost the entire EI team. When I finally came to write the piece up, it was actually hard to keep track of all the evidence that this had really happened, just because there is so much of it. But even in the two weeks since that piece was published, there's been new testimonies that have continued to emerge time and time again. And the mainstream media is, for the most part, so far, ignoring it. Now, I just want to talk briefly today about my latest story, which is reporting on another example of an Israeli testimony that shows yet again that a large number of the civilians killed on the 7th of October were killed not by Hamas, not by Palestinians, but by Israeli forces themselves. In a Hebrew language podcast, an Israeli Air Force colonel admitted that his forces blew up Israeli homes in the settlements using drones and helicopters. The colonel's name is Nof Erez. He's a reservist, but like many reservists, it seems he was called up to active service on the 7th of October. Now, according to the Haaretz podcast host, Erez was there that day watching events unfold live in an Air Force Command headquarters. Now, Erez's testimony backs up previous accounts in the Hebrew language media, a previous account by an anonymous Israeli helicopter pilot who stated that they shot at quote, everything along the fence with Gaza that day. But there was something truly new in Erez's interview He confirmed that Israel invoked something called the Hannibal Directive. Now, you as our viewers and listeners will have probably heard about this before. It was named after an ancient Carthaginian general who poisoned himself rather than be captured alive. The Hannibal Directive was a military doctrine which was established in secret about 30 years ago by Israel to discourage Lebanese and Palestinian resistance fighters from capturing Israeli soldiers alive so that they could be used in prisoner exchanges. In 2011, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza famously exchanged the captured Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit for 1027 Palestinian political prisoners who were being held hostage in Israeli jails, including Yahya Sinwar, who is now the leader of Hamas in Gaza? Here's a short clip of what Erez said in the Hebrew podcast. We're going to play the clip now and then I'll sum up what he said in English for our listeners who won't be able to read the
2: subtitles. Karapam? <laughs>
3: נועל חניבל אבל זה בכוונה, אז אם הוא פעל אז הוא פעל בכוונה, אם נפגעו חטופים במקרה זה משהו אחר.
2: חניבל, כנראה, שלב, כי ברגע שהבינו שיש חטיפה, אז הם מיד אומרים, חבר'ה, זה, זה חניבל. אבל שאנחנו כל ה- שנה האחרונות, זה רכב שיודעים מאיזה נקודה בגדר הוא נכנס, מאיזה רכב צד נוסע, אפילו על חניבל
1: Okay, thanks, Tamara. For the benefit of our listeners, here's what was said in that clip, and to emphasize it as well, I suppose. The Haaretz podcast host, Leo Kodner, asks Erez directly if the Hannibal Directive was used on the 7th of October, quote, and did it happen this time? Erez then replies, quote, we don't know if hostages were harmed at the stage when helicopters and drones began firing towards the fence, the fence with Gaza, when they saw the masses entering and exiting. The host then pressed him further and Erez then explicitly admits, quote, the Hannibal directive was apparently applied at a certain stage, end of quote. He even explains that, quote, The Hannibal we trained for all of the last 20 years is for a vehicle we know at what point of the fence it enters, on what side it drives, and maybe even on which road it drives. But he says, quote, this was a mass Hannibal. There were tons and tons of opening in the fence. Now, uh, this Podcast episode was first reported in English by the website The Cradle, which is one of the few independent outlets that have been covering this increasing mountain of evidence, along with ourselves, of course, the Gray Zone and Mondo Weiss. To our knowledge, to my knowledge, this is the first Israeli admission uh, by a senior Air Force officer, no less, that the Hannibal Directive was indeed applied on the 7th of October and that this did happen. For two months now, the evidence has suggested that this was very much the case. The indiscriminate and massive Israeli response to the Palestinian military assault on on bases, military bases and Gaza frontier settlements very much suggested this. The Israelis appear to prefer that Israeli civilians be killed rather than fall into Palestinian hands as captives. And now we have explicit and official Israeli confirmation that the Hannibal doctrine was indeed applied that day. So the next question to ask is the following, how much of all this was deliberate policy and how much was the result of the chaotic nature of the Israeli response to the Palestinian military assault? It has Also emerged that Israel appears to be quite literally burying evidence that could answer this question. Now, this is a story from the Jerusalem Post, which reported recently that cards containing the bloodstains or ashes of Israelis who died on 7 October would be crushed, shredded, as they put it, in what the paper was said, and also in what the paper said was the first. The card's remains would be buried in a cemetery. Now, the post provided a sort of religious pretext for all this. Nonetheless, this is a worrying development, which amounts to a state-sanctioned cover-up of what could potentially be some of the most important forensic evidence from the 7th of October. Given that the admissions of two Israeli pilots to date show that, number one, they shot up quote everything along the fence with Gaza that day and Number two, these new admissions that the Hannibal Directive was indeed applied, it is highly likely that many, if not most, of those cars were destroyed by Israeli drone and helicopter strikes, thus shooting or burning to death, both their Israeli and Palestinian occupants alike. There is a lot that's still unclear about what really happened on the 7th of October, but one thing is for sure, we urgently need an independent international investigation to get to the full truth. Atrocity propaganda is Israel's main distraction tactic from the hideous genocide that it is carrying out right now against the civilian population of the Gaza Strip. That these alleged atrocities against Israeli civilians, those that ever really happened in the first place, may have in fact been carried out by Israel itself, is a truth that the Israeli government is desperate to stop getting out.
0: Thank you so much, Asa. Uh, And uh, you can go, of course, to the Electronic Intifada's website, electronicintifada.net, and read Asa's uh, recent reports. Um, Thanks so much, Asa. And if you... Oh, go
4: ahead, Ali. Well, I I don't know if we have time, Nora, for uh, any questions for Asa. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I just... Well, thanks, Asa. I mean, it's... As you said, Asa, more and more evidence is coming out all the time. I have two questions for you. One is, do you see this starting to have an impact on mainstream discourse? Um, I see Israel, at least in a lot, a lot of their spokespeople on social media that we, we look at, are complaining that Israel is not being believed. And this includes about, in general, what happened on October 7th and what we talked about last time, the the recent claim of mass rapes. Mm -hmm. They're they're putting out these desperate-sounding posts on social media saying, now do you believe us? Now do you believe us? They did the same thing with uh, Schiffer Hospital after they announced, first of all, oh, we're going to find this big command center. And then they didn't, and they found some basement room with tiled walls and they said now do you believe us and yet at the same time they're not agreeing to or calling for any international investigation or any independent investigation I mean is is it just as simple as they know that this is not credible and they don't want anyone to come and check it out what do you think
1: yeah it's an interesting question I mean I i don't really see any sign that this is breaking through to the mainstream yet except on the margins i mean i think the only um signs we've seen of that so far are very small which was you know we mentioned in your segment the other day about um the mass rape fabrication that um you know owen jones's video and uh he mentions this you know he mentioned some of the friend, the so called friendly fire incidents um Yasmin Porat, and so forth. He mentioned them in passing in that video, but only to sort of dismiss them as a kind of conspiracy theory, as, as Haaretz, um in English has stated. Um, and, I mean, so, yeah, I don't see it breaking through at the moment, but we did see this week there was um, a segment on CNN which reported, I mean, I think we might talk about this later in the stream if we have time, about... Um, Israeli prisoners who had been released from Gaza um, who were talking about how they were in constant fear of being bombed by Israel while they were in Gaza. Um, And this was very briefly covered on CNN. Um, And, you know, kind of in passing again, um, I think, you know, they don't want an international investigation. And, I mean, I suppose every time these wars happen these genocidal wars happen against the Gaza Strip um, there does tend to be calls for international investigations by uh, all, all kinds of uh, liberals usually and human rights groups and I suppose our normal response to that is well, well personally I always feel like we don't need an international investigation to know what Israel's doing but in this case I think we do because um, because of the nature of of what happened and how a lot of it is so unclear and um, and uh, yeah, I mean Israel does its best to kind of you know there's the whole experience of the the Goldstone report where um, he you know the, the the international investigator who was the human rights lawyer and so forth from South Africa who later kind of partially recanted his investigation which said that Israel had committed war crimes and so forth, Um, and Israel always does its best to kind of stop these things happening. But I think in this case, they really, really don't want an investigation to happen. And we can see them kind of in real time, covering up the evidence of it. As I mentioned, there's also how, one of the other things I've mentioned in my articles is how um, some of the dead have been buried without being identified. Um, And your article, Ali, that um, the the Israeli spokesperson Mark Regev has um, admitted that um, 200 of the dead that they had initially thought were um, Israelis were in fact Palestinian fighters. So it just shows the indiscriminate nature of all of this.
0: And they're literally bearing the evidence. I mean, there's uh, all those hundreds of uh, incinerated cars uh, that were parked at the Nova music festival that uh, the Israeli government said that they're going to be burying under the sand as some sort of like uh, like art installation tribute or something. I mean, this, but but of course, we all know why <laughs> they're burying these cars that couldn't have been incinerated by um, a couple of AK-47s in an RPG. So.
4: And it's worth noting that uh, when it came to Israel's claims about the hospitals being used uh, as command centers and for weapon storage, that Hamas had very clearly and repeatedly called for an international investigation, and they'd called on the, right. the International yeah. Red Cross to bring uh, international investigators to go to all the hospitals in Gaza and investigate the Israeli claims. So it's very clear that one side has something to hide. Indeed. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you again, Asa. Um, and of course, uh, we'll be uncovering uh, all sorts of new revelations as time goes on. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by our contributors, Suwar El ejla and Ahmed al But first, we want to show two short videos by our contributor, Mohammed Assad, in Gaza that he made for us.
2: هنا يصطف عشرات المواطنين أمام إحدى محطات تعبئة الغاز كميات الغاز التي دخلت إلى قطاع غزة في اليوم الأول من الهدنة والتي ستدخل هي ضئيلة جداً جداً لا تكفي لحي حتى تكون لقطاع غزة الاثنين مليون ثلاثة من عشر إنسان في القطاع لذلك الاحتياج كبير جداً هؤلاء يصطفون من الفجر وربما لن يجنوا غاز في هذا المكان أصحاب هذه المحطة يقولون أنهم لم يصلهم أي كمية من الغازات لأن الكميات التي دخلت ضئيلة جداً 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 ولا تكفي لكل المحطات في قطاع غزة طبعاً إحنا من نعمل أكل على الحطب لأنه كميات الغاز اللي دخلت قطاع غزة في خلال فترة ترهدنا هي كميات ضئيلة جداً كل كان أو وتيحت إلى الفرصة أنه يحصل على كميات من غاز الطهي حتى البنزين نفس الشيء بالنسبه لحركه التنقل طبعا هذا غدايا اليوم طندوره على الحطب بعد يوم طويل عمل متعب شاق وكمان زديت الفول هذه اصدقائي اللي فقدتهم بالعشرات اصدقاء وقارب ويمكن إحنا مازقلنا عليهم مش عشان قلوبنا نجاسية لأ عشان قدرتنا الذهنية لسه ما استوعبت إنه إحنا فقدنا هذا الكم من الناس اللي كانوا حوالينا وقريبين علينا ولسه العقل مشغول بتأمين العائلة وكيف حتى أنا بدي أتحرك وأوثق هاي الحرب على غزة والصواريخ اللي بتنزل كل يوم والاستهدافات بكرة بس تنتهي الحرب على لغزة ونجلس Those were two
0: videos uh, sent to us made for us by Muhammad Assad in Gaza and we apologize that um, for our listeners who um, don't speak Arabic um, that uh, we will have, I mean, those videos are on uh, our Instagram and uh, they do have English subtitles. So you can watch those um, on, uh, yeah, when when you get a chance. Um, but we do want to bring in our contributor, Sawar El-Ejla. Uh, Sawar is... Um, She wrote a piece for us uh, asking why many international medical professionals and institutions who spoke out about Ukraine are remaining silent about Palestine. Sawar, thank you so much for joining us again on the live stream.
5: Thank you for having me.
4: Hi, Sawar. Hi. Um,
0: So first off, uh, you know, you're a physician. Uh, You worked in uh, Gaza hospitals. Um, Can you give us a sense of what your colleagues... Uh, are facing right now and and what um, what are the most uh, pressing concerns that people in the medical field have uh, for for people in Gaza?
5: Okay um, first of all the, the healthcare system in Gaza now are shuttered, completely shuttered and it turns all of it with um, the killing of um, healthcare workers like right till now 277 have been killed. And 42 have been kidnapped, and with um, the lack of medical supplies and the overwhelming numbers of wounded, and previously the the patients, sick patients, other than the wounded, it's consuming the healthcare system a lot. Of, of course, with uh, no supplies to fit, that's why um, make like um, a huge burden on uh, physicians and colleagues in Gaza to deal with. And they are now, like just as f- first aid providers, if they could do it in safe area with current, con- with current, uh, with um, recurrent and constant bombard- bombardments of uh, facilities and healthcare centers.
0: And you uh, wrote this piece for us um, last week. It's called uh, "Why Were West Doctors Outraged About Ukraine But Silent About Gaza." Um, And you go through a number of examples, um, including, uh, uh, you know, uh, healthcare associations, medical associations here in the United States. Um, There is one example, uh, you you report that a specialist in the UCLA healthcare system openly supported the killing and collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza, whom he called inbred, Um, And you write, such dehumanizing comments would raise raise serious doubts about any individual's ability to provide unbiased care. And it calls into question a doctor's fundamental capacity to treat fellow humans with dignity. Can you give us a sense of uh, your analysis here and and what is happening inside uh, medical associations and medical communities here in the West that still gives Israel this green light for genocide and for attacks on healthcare workers and patients.
5: Okay, the medical community response can be viewed as like at three levels, the physicians themselves and the journals and the associations or uh, institutions. All of these like together make like, they can like focus or uh, encourage the genocide happening in Gaza, especially focusing on healthcare facilities, uh, workers and patients. So when, uh, like physicians, like Western physicians or in church, like most doctors in all around the world, like trust the medical journals and institutions with their um, uh, publications. So when they are uh, when such uh, journals and institutions, who are the most trusted sources for the doctors, change the picture and uh, and display it, and like in like when someone when one of these it's played as um, a questions of doubt and how, like, doctors should have um, a degree in political or political uh, science so they can uh, say if the attacks on healthcare system are, uh, uh, are, uh, are you know, it's good or not, or uh, it should happen or not. So they are making doubts about if uh, killing patients and doctors is... Uh, can be supported or not. Uh, So this kind of bias and, uh, you know, uh, like, when we say these biased and uh, one-sided journals and institutions controlling the views of many doctors all around the world and uh, guiding them towards supporting the genocide of Gaza is really concerning and um, like uh, raised the, uh, the question about their credibility and how uh, we should take their publications and questions of why uh, and questions of how we take it or not, or their ethical evaluation of um, uh, the publications that they publish, like articles or research, um, take it.
0: And you also talk about the the kind of language that uh, these institutions and also uh, international organizations like the World Health Organization and the Red Cross have been using in their official statements, um, you know, employing the passive voice, not even mentioning who did the killing, uh, Israel, of course. Um, And and you contrast that with um, the kind of statements that were put out, uh, you know, in, in support of Ukraine, can you talk a little bit about that and how language is being employed here as well?
5: Um, they are um, mainly using the passive voice to refer, or if they wanted to refer to the the, the their stuff who have been killed, like Dima Alhaj, the WHO uh, worker, and if they want, they say died. So the their use of uh, Such terminology means that they don't want to condemn Israel uh, for their um, crimes and against what they do in Ukraine. For example, uh, the American American Surgical College have condemned directly the Russian uh, military for their actions in Ukraine. So when you are afraid or don't want to refer to such things, when Israel do it, either you support it or you're afraid of them.
0: Uh, Swar, um, can you talk a little bit more about um, what physicians right now are demanding from the so-called international community and organizations that purport to protect um, and and support uh, healthcare uh, all over the world? Um, what are physicians in Gaza, your colleagues? Uh, your friends demanding and and, uh, and what are they not getting right now?
5: Uh, of course, ceasefire now, you know. They not, they need immediate ceasefire because they can't take anymore and everything is collapsing. And uh, the second thing is not censoring their voices because, you know, uh, as a response of the JAMA publications where they wrote uh, about... Uh, uh, about the genocide and and the, the attacks on hospitals if it's a questions or not. Uh, Dr. sir, and Matt, uh, Dr. Matt Gilbert has written a piece as a response to a letter to the editor to respond to such um, article and they have fi- uh, they have voted like heavily for um, not, for writing only Palestine as a relation for Dr. Said they wanted to write it as Middle East to Spain and Gaza and refused to address Palestine as Palestine or at least occupied Palestinian territories. And uh, Palestinians <clears throat> must fight for like, publications, uh, even if it was neutral, not addressing Israel as um, like just talking about the healthcare situation and humanitarian crisis. Uh, they, they have to fight for uh, these publications and either it's either declined or get heavy editing, heavy editing. And the third things that doctors like want, they, you know, uh, um, a continuous supply of everything, even doctors, hospitals, um, uh, field hospitals, um, medications, uh, tools, everything.
0: And, uh, as we have been reporting, um, some of your colleagues, uh, physicians in Gaza, including the head of Al- Shifa Hospital, uh, Muhammad Abu Salmiya, have been uh, abducted, arrested, um, and um, and reports are that they are being interrogated and tortured by Israeli military forces. Um, can you talk about what is happening to the physicians and why Israel, would be doing this against uh, medical professionals?
5: Um, We have tracked till now 42 kidnapped or arrested doctors, Israel uh, abducted, uh, not doctors, healthcare workers. And some of them have been released. And they're on, uh, why they are arrested, arrest doctors now, because, you know, uh, the YouTube propaganda from since 7th October, about hospitals and doctors being collaborators or being based, uh, military based for Hamas. And uh, so now Israel uh, arrests them like, because they are doctors and maybe they have information about uh, Hamas and other stuff, but they do know they they are just civilians, doctors who know that, but just a kind of support to their propaganda.
4: If, if I can, uh... Thank you, Siwar, and thank you for your article for raising that issue, because it's maddening to see the hypocrisy like everyone, every organization, every institution that spoke out about Ukraine, but has remained silent about Gaza. It's not just in the medical field, it's in the cultural field, in the scientific field, in academia, and so on. Uh, I just want to give an update regarding uh, Dr. Muhammad Abu Salmiya, who we talked about recently. He's one of the medical personnel who have been detained. He's the director of Al-Shifa Hospital. And he was abducted uh, more than two weeks ago in Gaza. And uh, according to the Jerusalem Post, uh, reporting on two days ago, he is being investigated the headline is Shifa hospital director criminally probed under emergency war rules. And uh, the Jerusalem Post says that uh, Muhammad Abu Salmiya recently had a hearing before an unidentified Israeli civilian magistrate's court via video conference in which his detention was extended. He's being criminally, criminally probed by the Shin Bet, that's Israel's secret police and torture agency uh, under what the Jerusalem Post calls current war emergency regulations relating to Hamas and other terrorists connected to the war. And it says, as part of those regulations, Abu Salmiyyah is being prevented from meeting with a lawyer. So it's just incredible that uh, this is happening with no international outcry uh, and that Israel can treat doctors, senior doctors, uh, as if they are terrorists with nobody even knowing their name. I mean, I don't know beyond those who closely follow what's happening in, in Gaza, how many people even know the name of Dr. Abu Salmiya.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um War, uh, can you give us a little bit more information on the reports that keep coming out about uh, the spread of infectious diseases, um, you know, treatable injuries that are not being treated because there are no supplies left and uh, you know, emergency rooms are basically just first aid stations at this point. Um, can you talk a little bit about um this, this ongoing medical catastrophe that uh, that that we're all witnessing in Gaza.
5: Okay, um, I have contact with Doctor um, Duan. She is a family physician at uh, Primary Healthcare and uh, now volunteering in. And one of them, like she said, she receives like daily six hundred uh, patients. Most of them have. Uh, Respiratory infections and uh, gastroenteritis, uh, as well as dermatologic uh, skin infections. These are, of course, results from uh, lack of clean water, uh, no food, of course, and um, uh, the if the crowded, not clean areas, especially in, honor, in the in schools, in honor schools and shelters. And um, recently, my cousin Ahlam has passed away as a result of that. She, uh, she, she, his, her body is fragile. She can't tolerate like, um, uh, such circumstances, such environments with uh, no clean water and uh, no good food. She was admitted to the hospital one month ago, and, um, uh, there was suspect this doctors there suspected, um, Crohn's disease, which is treatable disease. And if it was, we couldn't like confirm it, the diagnosis, but if it was confirmed. Uh, we can, like, um, take care of a vet it as it's not treatable disease, but controlled. But Hlam buzzed away because, um, mainly maybe because of lack of um, medical care with overwhelming, uh, like, um, number of patients and wanted, And, of course, delayed, uh, uh, like, diagnostic tools, which is not available right now, especially for CT and other supportings. So, so, Hlam is one case of thousands of cases who uh, die daily, either from simple disease that would be easily treated on normal days, like uh, asthmatic patients, who need just oxygen, not available, of course, who died maybe because at their houses because they can't access treatment, and uh, and hospitals, uh, diabetic patients who are now can't find the medications, and. Uh, suffer from complications, which is life-threatening, of course. Hypertensi- hypertensi- hypertension and hypertensive emergencies can be treated easily at normal circumstances, but now no medications, no supplies. These patients are now dying silently and, of course, are not count on, counted on uh, the, uh, among the among those who have killed by direct pumping and um, rockets from Israel.
0: We're so sorry to hear about your cousin, uh, Ahlem. I'm so I'm so sorry. I can't imagine uh, what you and your family are going through. Um, I mean, just you know, like the you know we hear so much about you know the the numbers and the statistics, and you know, seventeen thousand killed so far, thousands more under the rebel, forty six thousand injured. But but there are no statistics yet on the number of people. Who have secondary injuries uh, or are dying of secondary causes, you know, not not directly caused by Israeli bombing, but because of the collapse of the medical system and no food and no water and no sanitation. Um, and this is part of the, the 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 genocide that Israel is carrying out. Um, it is deliberate, and it is entirely man-made. Uh, this is an Israeli project of ethnic cleansing. Um, so you what um I mean what like ha- have you ever seen something this catastrophic in your life?
5: No, I've never seen like even if um healthcare system basically was um overstretched in Gaza, they have been something uh, like the the trucks that even uh bus through the cross border could be held, and doctors use it like wisely. Let's say, but this collapse of system is, have, have never seen, and um, you know everything is lacking. Everything, even food. You know, food. We have. I, I haven't witnessed ever like this this kind of food lack, like water. And, and during the wars, we know. I know. I experienced like water, but you know, food. It's it's more than it's maddening. Just maddening how like such basic things are not affordable, are not there, and people die because of this, like we are in 2023 and people are still dying of starvation, still dying, still not finding water. So.
0: No, it's it's unbelievable. Um, uh, yeah, um, what can we say? Um, <laughs> how are you how are you doing how are you you know you're in canada many thousands of miles away um you have a job uh doing research medical research um how how are you able to function these days
5: i would say like ahlam was not the only one maybe our losses, like uh, not that much like compared to other people who lost like hundreds of their families and i pray that it will be the last uh loss so and we can have ceasefire so soon and we can like hold up ourselves again and um together to have time to grab and bury our kids our dead so
0: Amazing. Um, Ali, did you have a a question for Siwar?
4: Uh, I I guess I'd like to know, Siwar, if you're still able to stay in touch with people in Gaza? Are you able to stay connected with your family, with your colleagues, with your friends? It's getting more difficult for us, and I just wanted to know if you're getting any updates.
5: Like three days ago, I, uh, I the last the last contact was three days ago, but I send like mass messaging to them so anytime any one of them could uh, like connect to internet, they can like uh, send uh, respond to me and uh, reassure me about their uh, their circumstances and um, as for calls, sometimes it's yeah there is networks and I can like talk to them and sometimes no. Even people in Gaza don't know about each other. You know, my father and uh, brothers are in Shijayim now, and uh, the rest sort of the family are in uh, school shelters. So they don't know about those in Gaza. And I don't know about both. So <laughs> it's funny. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
4: It's very difficult. It's incredibly difficult. That's what, that's, I mean, it, I think we've heard it time and again but it can't be stressed enough obviously people in gaza are going through uh, an unbelievably horrific stressful devastating time but we keep in our thoughts everyone including us who is outside gaza who has family there and just the desperate worry and concern all the time 24 hours a day is something that I'm sure is weighing very, very heavily, and uh, we keep you in our thoughts and we hope that you will be reunited with your family soon uh, in much better circumstances.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Sawar, and um, we really again, appreciate all the work that you do and all of these stories that you've been contributing to the Electronic Intifada, they are just incredibly valuable. Um, and and we really are grateful for your work. Thank you so much, Sawar.
5: Thank you,
0: too. This is the Electronic Intifada live stream for Thursday, December 7th. Um, before we go to Ahmed as in a few minutes, Ali, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about our friends and colleagues in Gaza right now, and also um, some news reports about mass, mass arrests. Um, so yeah. yeah, you say.
4: Yes, uh, Nora. I just wanted to, to say I know that many people are concerned about our friends and colleagues in Gaza. I'm getting questions from people about Rifat al who we've had on the show many times and who does such important work, and uh, our friend Ahmad Tema. and unfortunately we haven't heard from them for several days, uh, and that's true with a number of people in Gaza I will say that they were both very clear with us that access to the internet is now extremely difficult. Mobile phone networks are down. And another one of our uh, colleagues in Gaza, Ahmed Dremli, uh, did manage to get a message to me yesterday, and he explained that you don't have internet the vast majority of the time or it's not safe to go out and look for it. But then even if you do get internet, the other problem is that it is so difficult for anyone to charge their devices. So in, in one sense, that's comforting because we we, we we hope that the silence is just because of the difficulty of connecting and not something worse. But on the other hand, it is extremely worrying that we're not hearing from our friends and colleagues. And it's in that context that uh, the reports that are coming out of Gaza now of mass arrests in the north of Gaza and some of the human rights activists have, have circulated photos showing mass roundups of uh, Palestinian men, civilians, in the north of Gaza, that Israel is uh, binding, uh, stripping of their clothes. Uh, I'm going to show you this uh, photo. I'm going to drop this in the in the in our chat here, and Tamara, the ever brilliant Tamara Nassar behind the scenes, can hopefully display this tweet, which is published by the Euro-Mediterranean uh, Human Rights Group, and it shows men bound and gagged, a large number of men bound and gagged, who were taken from UNRWA shelters. And there is also a fear. Some some uh, people, including uh, Rami Abdu of the Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Group, Rami is a longtime human rights defender. I actually met him in Gaza 10 years ago. He's now uh, in uh, Istanbul, but of course his organization maintains contact with a lot of people in Gaza and he's raising the possibility that there may well be uh, mass executions as part of this genocide uh, and these images and there are others similar to them of men being rounded up and put in trucks certainly uh, raise in my mind they remind me of the pictures or the, the, the events that happened in Srebrenica in Bosnia uh, in the 1990s, where there was a genocide. And of course, with no one there to be able to see what's happening, really anything can happen. So it's, it's extremely, extremely worrying. And, and so this is just to say that we are constantly trying to stay connected with our friends and colleagues in Gaza. I'm happy to say we are in touch with some of them and when there's any significant news, we will report it and let you know. But uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's asking about rahmat Rifat and Ahmed Aburtema and others. We're making constant efforts to try and stay connected with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is extremely worrying. Um. For the next 10 minutes, uh, I wanted to get John's analysis of um, what we're seeing in terms of the ground operations, especially in the south of the Gaza Strip, where, you know, Israel has told people to evacuate, um, you know, uh, saying that it's for their safety and then invading the south, besieging it and carpet bombing um, and, and, you know, and then we'll take a break and we'll, we'll have, uh, our contributor Ahmed Asamek join us and then come back for more analysis. But, but first, uh, just briefly, John, what can you tell us about the nature of the ground invasion, especially what's going on in the South?
6: Yeah, Israel's moved its focus to the South after the, uh, humanitarian, uh, prisoner exchange and pause. And the level of fighting is intense right now in the south. Um, It's intense all over the Gaza Strip. Of course, the airstrikes underpin everything that's happening. Um, Nowhere safe for anybody. Um, The war in the north continues. um, But really, the focus right now for Israel is on the south. And I think that there's, um, you know, the necessity for Israel to have some sort of um, you know, spectacle of, of victory or um, accomplishment, something that they can show for um, what they've done um, in the humanitarian realm that we've been talking about, the, the devastation and horror, um, to what end. Um, and so I think Khan Yunis for them is was a necessary target. It's the home of Muhammad Dayef, the head of the Kassam Brigades, and um, Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of um, Hamas's Politburo, but who is also a founding member of the Kassam Brigades. Um, So I think there's a propaganda value to um, some of this. I mean, we saw Netanyahu yesterday say that they had encircled the house of Yahya Sinwar. Um, And then everybody in the media in the West repeated it. I heard it on the BBC and CBC here in Canada. Um, there's no as, evidence of that. Yeah, at as, this
0: point. as though Yahya yeah, Sinwar would be just waiting for them in his living room. Um,
6: well, well, Sinwar is actually an interesting guy because he last time they destroyed his house, he took a great photo. I guess that was last year's war, and he took a photo sitting in his in his chair with a big smile on his face. Not a guy you see smiling a lot. Um, and then after he gave that speech at the stadium at the end of the war, he said he was going to walk home. So if Israel wanted to assassinate him that, uh, he would be walking for the next 45 minutes to his house and he did that. Um, so I think this is, um, you know, part of the, um, the disconnect between what's going on in the, on the ground and the sort of propaganda war, where you just say, you know, we're, we're trying to get the, you know, we're trying to kill the leader as if that's, um, um, you know, as if that would justify this war, um, that has targeted civilians. And you can see by that picture, thanks, Tamara, you can see by that picture, he doesn't care what you do to his house. Um, You know, this is um, a war for liberation and nobody has been more clear about that articulation than Yahya Sinwar, that um, Palestinians are not going to just be silent um, in the face of their genocide, which before October 7th was slow and steady. And of course, since October 7th has been accelerated and very public, Um, But it's the same dynamic, and um, these kind of um, shows of, you know, these kind of spectacles, they don't have any impact on the ground. They don't have any impact of the war that they're actually fighting. Um, People don't take it seriously, and Yahya Senwar has given lots of opportunities to prove that he does not care about this kind of, um, you know, encircling his house. Although it's worth noting that part of being a resistance leader in Palestine is expecting that um, your family will be killed, um, and your extended family will be killed, um, but not you. You'll, your your home will be targeted with the civilians inside it. Um, so this idea that they're encircling his house as if there's a tunnel under there that that he's just hanging out in—it's just propaganda. Um, when meanwhile um, the 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 ferocity of the armed struggle that's happening in the south, which makes sense, um, is is the focus right now for the resistance. Um, Although the resistance is all over um, the north as well, of course, um, it's focused in the south. And you can see by their reports that the fighting is fierce in Kanyunis right now. um, And Kassam Brigades are are basically saying and have been saying for about a week now, that they're taking out an armored vehicle per hour, um, essentially in this fight. And so Israel had some time during the humanitarian, during the ceasefire, um, during the pause. I mean, it's weird to call it a ceasefire, but during the um, the prisoner exchange, um, you know, both sides needed that. And but Israel needed it in particular um, to, you know, recoup their um, damaged vehicles to fix their field, uh, vehicles, um, and that kind of, of, um, um, thing to prepare it for the fight in the South, which, um, is being set up at this point, um, in the same language that Israel said in the North, they've said Khan Yunus is the, you know, the number two, um, Kassam battalion, um, to be targeted after pre- presumably Shajaiya and Jabalia, which is still fighting fiercely, um, now 60 plus days. Uh, on into the war. So there's certain things that Israel has to accomplish um, before they can wind up um, their war with some kind of achievements. And so Khan Yunus is one of those. And and of course, it's just, as Suar said, it's just brutal what's happening. Israel, of course, we covered for the previous 60 days, told everybody to go south. So Israel pushed everybody into this area um, that they're now attacking and they don't allow people to go back north um, to their home. So people aren't able to flee in the other direction um, back to the north. So everybody is cramped in this tiny corner of the already tiny um, and encircled Gaza Strip with no way out. Um, nowhere is safe. I mean, we can see footage because people have their camera, their phones in these UN schools. And we can see the strikes, airstrikes all around these schools, and the ground forces ha- have just begun. Um, so this part of the war has really just begun, and I, I think I think we all are f- uh, afraid of what just what that means um, to fight a war, to, to to direct your army to this tiny p- uh, parcel of land. Um, that's just crowded with so many people and it's just the, like the algorithm of, of massacres where people started with their families, um, and moved. And so they started at 10 and then they went to another, uh, family member and they became 20 and then 20 to the next to 40. Um, and that's why we're seeing these brutal massacres now four generations of families, multiple families in the same buildings and Israel's dropping these buildings, um, on top of entire families that are trying to, um, that were, uh, went to the South on orders, um, life and death orders, um, and are now being attacked um, where they said the safe zones were. So, um, you know, we'll talk more later in the show about the accomplishments of the resistance, but I think just um, from the humanitarian perspective, um, this is setting up to be a disaster. And we've talked about it before, is like, what what is the number that, uh, that that Israel's allowed to massacre um, in, a, in a tantrum uh, to make up for October 7th when their uh, Gaza division was crushed and taken underground in Gaza.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, after we uh, hear from our friend Ahmed As-samak, we're going to come back to you, John, uh, 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 to talk specifically about the gains of the Palestinian resistance groups. Um, and we're also going to be... Uh, watching some uh j- jelly beans um we're calling them um <laughs> so um so so please stick around um but for just uh, the next few minutes if you could talk about these uh allegations that um Israel is trying to flood the tunnel network under Gaza with seawater we saw yesterday some images being passed around on social media of uh, you know, a group of Israeli soldiers um, it, it, with what looked like a, a giant hose or, or pipe um, connected to the beach. You know, the, the sea at the beach. Um, uh, you know, ostensibly uh, being fed into some tunnel. I mean, it 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 didn't look very um, engineering. You know, like very structurally engineered. But uh, but this is what we're seeing on social media talk about the veracity of these claims and um and what your analysis is of that
6: right so israel is saying that essentially they've got these five pumps on the beach north of the shati camp um on the north west edge of gaza and they have these pumps that they're attempting they're going to flood the tunnels with seawater um which is just, I know, I I think we've talked about this previously um, on these live streams, and I know we talked about um, the attempt to gas them. Um, A lot of this shows, I I think, more than whether it can be done, it shows that Israel um, is really searching for any alternative besides actually fighting in these tunnels. So the first thing to note, of course, which the captives who were released and who met with Netanyahu, the other day mentioned, um, Israel's people are all in these tunnels. Um, so that's first and foremost, the, the captives who met with Netanyahu, I guess rightfully so, freaked out about this plan because if it were to work, um, the result would be to kill all of their soldiers, more than 100 um, captives that are still held in Gaza. Um, so right away, it's already a suspect idea because were it to work, um, I'm not sure that that would be something that Israel would be uh, would be advantageous for Israel. But um, let's just really talk about the tunnels. There's 1,300 of them, according to the Israelis. There's 500 kilometers of them. Um, it would take millions of cubic meters to pump through these uh, pumps. So even if it did work, Um, It presumes that you have months to carry out this operation. It presumes that Israel knows where the tunnels are in the first place, which we know is not true. Um, They don't know the difference between an offensive uh, tunnel, a defensive tunnel, a logistics tunnel. Um, And none of us do, um, for the record, although a few Israelis now do. They know better than anybody and nobody else really knows. Um, So there's a lot in that Wall Street Journal article that that we just showed there. Um, to be fair to the experts in that article, they all said the same thing: we don't know. We've never we've never dealt with something like this um, historically. There's been nothing on this scale. It's a massive engineering project um, for people in Gaza, and any historical example of um, tunnels has enough. Differences, um, distinctions that would make them that make those historical examples not as relevant. Like the Vietnamese, the Americans tried to flood tunnels in Viet, in Vietnam. The Vietnamese tunnels weren't as deep as these tunnels in Gaza. They weren't as well um, the concrete um, sided like the we know that they are in Gaza. We've seen documentaries from inside the tunnels that show completely um, uh, in, encased concrete. Um, tunnels, Um, not just the ones that we see on these videos that the Israelis have showed that show sort of prefab concrete. Um, We've seen tunnels that are completely encased. Um, So it's not clear um, that that's even possible for Israel to do. It also presumes that the Palestinians themselves haven't already thought of this, which is a massive engineering accomplishment to dig these tunnels. And the most important engineering aspect of the tunnels Um, for people who are familiar with Gaza and its, um, uh, you know, and its sandy, and its sandy soil is that over the years, they have collapsed. So um, the Palestinians are very well aware of what makes the tunnels collapse. And so um, pumping the tunnels is part of the apparatus of the engineering of the tunnels. Furthermore, as we know from Israel from the tunnel that they accidentally found that was 70 meters deep, Um, that that's as much as 50 meters below the water table. Um, So it already presumes that you're pumping below the water table. Um, But really, we're getting into into territory that we just don't, we just don't know the answer. It presumes, um, for one thing, that the tunnels are all connected. It presumes that your entrance at Shati camp Um, somehow connects to the entire system and that you could then spend months filling up the entire system, sort of like a cartoon. Um, But the devastation that comes from it is well known. If you pump salt water into the aquifer, you're going to make Gaza essentially unlivable. And I think Ali talked on the show before about um, a paper he wrote about the aquifer it's already a very dangerous situation for that aquifer um, under significant stress that I can remember when I lived in Gaza, um, the United Nations was saying that Gaza was gonna be unlivable by 2020, in part because of the collapse of the water table and the inability um, to keep up with desalinization um, uh, imperatives that come from from having the sea be right beside you, which is again, You know, we don't we don't know how um, the sea would impact these. Will it collapse the surface layer? Um, Does it create um, instability throughout the entire Gaza Strip through the rebuilding process? We don't know the answer to any of these questions. And the Israelis don't either, which is why they didn't begin by saying we're going to flood the tunnels because their own experts don't believe that um, flooding the tunnels will work because of the size because they don't know, the Israelis don't know if the tunnel network is even connected. It's possible they go in and they find an offensive tunnel in Shati and they pump and take photos of it and have a spectacle of uh, flooding the tunnels because they can't get out of this war without saying they dealt with the tunnels, because uh, unlike before October 6th, October uh, October sixth and before nobody a lot of people in the world didn't know there was a massive underground tunnel network in the Gaza Strip um, but everybody knows now so there's no pretense that Israel can withdraw from Gaza in any kind of um, you know pretense of victory without saying that they somehow dealt with the tunnels and so that's I think what we're dealing with more here like a psychological operation um, a propaganda victory um,
4: and and John, I, I I really do think there's a lot to that because the image that uh, the tweet we showed earlier, showing that photo on the beach of them supposedly pumping seawater into the right, that one, that is posted by Aviva Klompas, who there's no reason people should recognize that name, but she is a former, uh, I think her official bio is that she's a former speechwriter at the UN, at the, is Israel's mission at the United Nations. But she seems to be a a conduit for official propaganda. In other words, even though she doesn't have a formal role now, she seems to be, she and a couple of other accounts, I've noticed, seem to get these, propaganda images passed to them from Israeli authorities and then they put it out as if they're just sort of journalists or civilians or whatever it is to try to remove the finger the official fingerprints from this propaganda so I think the fact that this is being shared by uh, an account like this is really more about giving the image of victory because if you've pumped you know they're pumping seawater. I don't know if it's it's possible to zoom in further, but it's like they're pumping seawater into the beach, into the sandy beach. Is that what they're doing? I mean, if you've ever dumped water into sandy soil, you know that that water just dissipates down into the into the sandy soil or to the aquifer. So, I don't even know Uh, the idea that they have there at the end of that hose an entrance that leads them to the whole tunnel network is absolutely ridiculous and that you could just flood a sandy beach and that that's somehow going to to help you. So to me, this really looks like a, a psyop or propaganda for international consumption, and possibly for, for Israeli domestic consumption. Now I'm just noticing all the Israeli soldiers over there uh, by the, the shore. I don't know what they're doing, if they're just taking a walk on the beach
6: or- I
0: had the same thought just or, now. <laughs> yeah. or, or
4: what? what
0: but it's the, a
4: logistical
6: uh, nightmare what's happening here. This cannot be a months long process.
0: And, and,
4: and that's the other thing. I mean, they're posting this photo This does not show how much water. Look at that little hose they've got there. I mean, it's big for a hose, but how much water would you have to pump and how long would it take to make any significant difference, especially if you're pumping it into sand where it's just going to drain back towards the sea? So if this is what they're trying to sell to people, it's not not doing the trick. But you could see,
6: Ali, that they've come out of this um, prisoner exchange ceasefire with a whole new, it's like they got their focus groups fired up during the seven day break and they've come back to answer the sort of questions um, that people had. Like, how can you say you're winning if you haven't touched a tunnel and you're too scared to go down a tunnel? You won't even go into a tunnel under Shifa where you said your people are. And the, there was no booby traps. Um you know and all these other tunnels that they say that they're shutting down so they say they've they've closed 500 tunnels um what's the connection between closing those tunnels and where your people are the presumption is that you've closed off the exits to the tunnels on the one side of their propaganda they're saying we're closing off all of these entrances and then on the other side of their propaganda they're saying that they're going to flood the tunnels to the top where's their where are their people going to go Um, and it's like, they, they rolled this story out in like, what is it? The seventh, I think that wall street journal story, um, you know, was from the fifth, sixth or seventh of, of December. They've been in that area north of Shati along the beach, um, for weeks. So they could have been four weeks into their brilliant engineering project to pump water into the Gaza tunnels. Um, but that wasn't on their radar for the first half of the war. And then they come out of their, their ceasefire um, pause and they have a completely different push on their propaganda. Now they're dealing with the tunnels. Now they're dealing with Sinoir. Um, You know, now they're talking about their own soldiers because um, they previously, as we've talked about, didn't talk about what their soldiers were doing. There was no stories of, of like heroic soldiers. Well, they came out of the pause and now they're talking about their soldiers fighting close quarters combat, um, associating some of the deaths, even with fighting, uh, fierce fighting, close quarters that they're winning. Um, So it almost looks like during the pause, they saw their focus groups and their focus groups said, you have to deal with the leadership. You have to deal with the tunnels. You have to show us to be heroes because you're hiding your deaths. Um, and part of hiding your deaths is that you're taking away from your own people um, any of spectacles of, of victory. Like, I don't want to well predict, be, but uh,
1: the okay. day after
6: the war, Kassam is going to have a parade where there's tens of thousands of fighters. So h- how is Israel going to have these these this victory after this genocide that they've carried out? When they hit their magic number for Blinken, what is it? 50,000 people. You get to kill 50,000 people but show no military victories for four divisions of your army being deployed inside the Gaza Strip, Um, a war that you've been planning for for decades. Um, I think a lot of this is it's, it's it's psyops. It's it's a lot of it is is propaganda.
4: And I think uh, that that also relates to the photos we looked at earlier of these civilian men taken from UN shelters, these horrifying images, uh, is to create an image of... Because, of course, Israel is going to claim and is going to market these photos to, to its own people that these are Hamas militants who've either been captured or surrendered, and that is not the case at all. No,
6: they're Uh, already saying that. They're saying they got them from tunnels, which is just patently false. It's a
4: lie because they wouldn't have come out of the tunnels. And and we know the Israelis aren't going in. And there's nowhere uh, that uh, you're going to get that many people, that many fighters gathering together in one place in a combat zone. These are very small cells that move around very furtively, as we're going to see when we look at uh, some more of the, the videos later and And we know that these are people who are being abducted from from u n shelters or when people are trying to move south. And but again, this is about creating a spectacle by which Israel can claim that it is uh, winning, that it's dominating, that it's teaching those barbarians, those savages a lesson uh, by stripping them down, by blindfolding them, by humiliating them in this manner but i don't know that it has that effect except perhaps with the israeli public i think a lot a lot of people look at this and they just see more images of of brutal domination and horror i I don't know that this really impresses anyone who isn't already firmly on israel's side right
6: right yeah i mean that looks like janine when i lived in janine and they would arrest everybody they would tell all the men um you know, between 17 and 35 to show up at the schoolyard or that kind of thing. And, um, you know, mass rests. Um, this is, this is, that looks like the Israel that we know, uh, very well. And people in Gaza know from decades of occupation really well. Um, the thing that they've really done this time is dial up the, um, you know, technological massacres. Um, but that kind of picture right there, I think people in Gaza, um, Maybe not on that large a scale, but that's, that's, that's the sort of photo that goes back to the beginnings of the Israeli occupation. Um, and I think, you know, what Rami Abdo said is, is the concern. I think people are concerned that that's the, 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 the stages before a, a massacre that they've seen before. Um, hmm. the, the, these, these photos are very disturbing. This, this photo is a horrific photo and then there the, there's another one showing truckloads of people these guys are then put in trucks and and shipped off to where and 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 who knows where they are who it's just such a brutal situation yeah
0: yeah it's criminal it is um we are going to um pause on this conversation for a minute. We wanted to bring on our good friend Ahmed Asamak. He is a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Uh, He is currently an MBA student in Dublin, Ireland, and he previously worked as a journalist in Gaza where he grew up. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us again on the Electronic Intifada live stream. How are you doing?
3: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me for the second time uh I'm good thank you. How about you <laughs>
0: uh I don't know the answer to that question <laughs> we're, we're happy to see you uh, We right. are happy to see you um can you give us thank a you, sense thank you. Of, thank you can you give us a sense of what you're hearing from your family uh if you're able to connect with them at all uh what the situation is for them and for your friends and neighbors and 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 community members in Gaza?
3: Unfortunately, it's uh, getting worse and worse. Especially after the, after the occupation uh, has launched another ground invasion in the south. After they ordered 1.1 million people from Gaza City and the northern the to go to the south, uh, it's it's really it's really heartbreaking. Uh, last week i've lost my uncle uh he he, he was sleeping he just was sleeping and then they bombed uh, his his flat he he's a father of six six children the oldest uh daughter is i guess 17 or or 18 uh, their mother's their mother passed away a few years ago, and now their father was killed last week, and now they are orphans, as thousands of, of children in Gaza. Uh, I don't know I don't know what, what should I say in such a situation. Two weeks ago, before storming Shifa hospital, they also bombed my other uncle in Gaza. Before bombing his house, my uncle evacuated to the, to the, uh, in the middle of the Strip. And he told his family, I, will, I would go there for, to find a place to shelter in. And then I will call you to come back after me. And then he went there. He went to the south, or in the middle of the Strip, which is the south of the Gaza Valley with his son after two days his uh, sons and daughters were supposed also to evacuate to the south but israel bombed them killing two of them muhammad and his wife heather and wounding many children i guess five or four of them and my other cousins also were severely injured after like a few days in hospital, before storming the hospital, maybe in in two days or something like that, one of them evacuated to the south. He had to. He was injured, but he had to evacuate and to walk more than ten kilometers on foot, because there weren't any taxis or uh, any cars. So, on the uh, Israeli military cross point. Uh, on al-Din Street, they kidnapped him they arrested him. he was injured he just was like twenty two year old He's completely civilian he he dis- he didn't done he didn't did uh, do anything wrong in his life. He's just a man who works uh, as as a vendor you know, he has no military or political interests i don't know why but they arrested him. They brutally tortured him for nine days in Asqalan or Ashkelon uh, prison. And then they, uh, he was along with, I guess, 20 or 30 uh, Gazans. And then they released him on Karam Abu Salim uh, crossing point in Rafah in the south. And before releasing them, the Israeli soldiers were shooting on the ground near to them to wash them and to make them just, just to run. And he told me, Ahmed, they, just, they, they were like playing with us or just shooting on us, near us, and they were laughing. The point is my uncle didn't, couldn't hug his killed son. For the last time, before grieving, before before burying him or his uh, his wife, I like when we are talking about killing people. Sometimes I feel like a shame when when I want to talk about my my damaged house, and this is for the third time they bombed an adjoining house to us, our neighbors, they are from uh, Abu Shusha or Abu Saud, they have two names. They were completely civilians. I don't know why, why they kill, why, why they killed them. They dropped a one-ton bomb on them, and they destroyed a three-story house on them, killing 10 people, and they have been under the rubble like, for maybe 10 days or two weeks ago. And no one can still no one can pull them up. Our house was significantly damaged. When my family, during the uh, temporary uh, truce, went to my house, to our house, to to check and to to take uh, what remained, like from our clothes and this stuff. My brother Momin told me they had found a lot of, of flesh and some parts of from our neighbor's body in our house just just and I was talking uh three days ago with my mom, and she told me we are thinking of uh, like like we want to to just to escape from all that but we didn't find any place uh after the israeli uh, ground invasion to the south they ordered people to go to rafah uh, from khan yunis to rafah or to uh, to dir al-balah which is a camp in, in the middle uh, of the strip and my family was like my mom told me they wanted to to evacuate there but i told them no don't go there because they all are Committing uh, massacres there, and they still uh, where they are now. The point is now they don't have they. My family has run off uh, of of gas cylinders or cooking gas, so they have to find uh, woods or uh, for for fire to cook. And they told me we did we we can't find any uh, one any shop or wood shops or in any sh- any woods like my fam my my brothers go every day just walking on the streets to find cartons or woods from the streets and take th- and to take them for uh, for fires and then they 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 told me like ahmed we we stopped like fi- even finding woods and cartons on the streets all people are looking for are like looking for woods and cartons so they had to go to my house, as all my beds, our beds, cardboards, doors, are, were smashed and broken due to the bombing. They took the broken, all all the wood of the broken uh, wooden stuff to set a fire to cook. Just imagine and yesterday he just sent me a photo of the of what remains of my bed and he told me look we are fi- we are, we, uh, we are using it to uh, to cook you know for fire to cook just imagine before traveling to dublin i was like i was like i was talking to my mom about uh, getting married and uh, I just spared some time for marriage because uh, marriage in gaza is a little marriage costs in gaza are high like it costs like maybe ten thousand dollars and i was talking with my mom about this and now it's it's almost impossible to get married now because we have to use the all money i uh, spared for marriage to repair the house because there isn't any words up to date about compensations or about uh rebuilding uh, the money funding to rebuild Gaza. And again when, when I'm talking about this, like I feel I've I I've, like I feel ashamed a little bit to talk about the financial losses in front of killing people and losing friends and losing relatives and uncles, I'm at words. I, I don't know what should I say. I don't know.
4: It's it just you know the the scare. I, I'm just thinking as I'm listening to Muhammad uh, uh, Ahmed. I'm thinking of the the video we watched earlier from our colleague Muhammad Asad in Gaza. Where he, say, where he said, we, we played a short video earlier before you joined us, uh, where he said that people don't even have time to mourn for the dead. And we've heard that from so many people because it is a matter of survival now. People people are just trying to get through one day at a time. And when you're trying to get through one day at a time, you do have to think about finding wood to cook, unbelievably, in in the twenty third, in in the year twenty twenty three, that people are forced to look for wood in order to cook. You do have to worry about shelter. You have to uh, to think about those things. And I think that you're even the fact that you're even thinking about repairing your house to me is is a a, a sign that you see a future that you see something in the future, that you see hope, that you're thinking about the future. And I don't think that's something to be ashamed of, Ahmed. I think that as long as we're thinking about a future, then we maintain our hope and we maintain our faith that there will be something to return to and to rebuild. So I think you should think about it in that positive way. And it it's... I don't think we as humans are capable of understanding or comprehending this level of loss where so many people, we don't know anyone in Gaza, Ahmed, who hasn't lost dozens of friends and family, dozens. You know, they've killed at this point one in every 100 people in Gaza, one in every 100 people. And so uh, I think it's going to take years and years for us to um, even begin to understand the scale of the loss. But in the meantime, we have to maintain our hope for the future.
0: I think uh, Ahmed's internet connection um, was unstable and it looks like he dropped off. Um, we'll try to get him back on. Um, but I think that's exactly right. I think that um we we we, yeah, I, I don't think that we're psychologically capable of understanding the uh, just the 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 breadth of this kind of catastrophe um and nightmare. And you know, that's for us watching it happen. um it's unimaginable the exponential, uh, you know, weight of all of that on the people in Gaza right now, living it. Um, Ahmed, you're back. Uh, what else can we say? Um, what you know, when when you think about the future in a liberated Palestine, what what are you thinking about? Ahmed, can you hear us? Maybe you can't hear us. Um, Okay, we'll try to get him back. But that's that's a you know that's a a big question that I think a lot of people are are talking about now. Um, You know, and it has to do with like reclaiming the humanity and and um, and you know really embodying that that liberation struggle that everyone is is working toward. Um, so hopefully we can get him back on to talk about that. But in the meantime, um, let's talk about the resistance. John, what can we say about some of the new, uh, video, uh, jelly beans that we've been seeing? Uh, what do they tell us about, um, how the pa- Palestinian resistance, uh, operations are going?
6: So I think we're going to take, uh, <clears throat> the banning gamble excuse me um and, and show a couple of videos here what happened this week um i think these
4: videos are worth um uh, worth risking our uh, <laughs> we, we should we should just say i think it's important for for viewers and listeners to know that we do not have free speech on this platform uh we have had several of our videos uh summarily removed by this uh video platform uh and we've appealed those removals and uh, they haven't come back and we know that all of these uh big tech companies are working hand in hand to censor what they claim is misinformation or disinformation but which is actually the truth The more you tell the truth on these platforms, the more likely you are to be banned. That said, we're going to uh, hand it to John to take us through a video and hope that uh, at least our live viewers will see. I'll just say this. Of course, we're recording this and what we'll be able to do if they do nuke our live stream afterwards is we will have the separate segments. And we will be able to put them up. So you'll still be able to hear the discussion with Siwar or with Ahmed or some of the other stuff we've done. But uh we think it's worth it worth it. So let, let's go. Okay, so this is this
6: is from Shajaiya The Israelis haven't gone into shajaiya yet. They've avoided it. It's their uh they have nightmares about this place from 2014. And just by looking, we can see that they're able to move from building to building. They are within feet firing these Yassins that we've talked about, Palestinian-produced warheads. And there's a burning Israeli armored personnel carrier, which previously we hadn't seen. We've seen a lot of strikes um, of these weapons, but... Um, we, we haven't seen the aftermath in part because people have had to leave the scene. And so here you can see in this moment that, that the spotter actually tells him he's about to shoot because they can hear the armored vehicles moving down the road and he's about to shoot. And the one, and the spotter says, no, no, wait, that's a bulldozer. Uh, It's not an armored personnel carrier. Carrying thirteen soldiers, or a tank carrying three to five, um, it's a bulldozer with one person in it. So presumably, they're picking their targets. They they have the ability to have spotters in these buildings, and are are picking their targets in Shujaia, which is where um, I mean, it, you can almost touch the vehicle from there. And of course, these videos don't match with the Israeli casualty reports that come out of Gaza, which has been something that we don't know the answer to. We're analyzing this in real time. We don't have access to the fighters right now. I'm sure there's going to be a decade of documentaries uh, that tell us these stories. But this is Shijaya. The fighters clearly have the ability 60 days into the war to move between buildings, to hit point blank like this,
4: and John, the the interest, and then is th-
6: this part, Ali. Just let me say this: this part, yeah. that's that's their fighters right there, saying this is for Wissam Farhat, who we talked about on the show on Monday, who's the Shiaiya battalion commander that was assassinated by the Israelis um, just as the as the prisoner exchange, which presumably he was uh, very involved in. Um, was taking place. And so we actually haven't heard from Kassam that Farhat was assassinated. We've only heard from the Israelis. Um, and now this appears to be confirmation um, in the most spectacular fashion. Basically, within less than 72 hours, he was killed on, um, on Monday in Palestine, Sunday night um, here. And we're seeing their fighters um, posing outside of the burning vehicle um, and saying this is for Wassam Farhad. And just if you weren't um, with us on Monday on the show, um, I discussed him as an example, um, the battalion commander in Shajaiya, who's basically... Um, his career marks the trajectory of the rise of the Kassam brigades from a guerrilla movement to a form, basically a formal army that we're watching, and we've been watching for the last sixty days. He's been the Shajaiya battalion commander, which is the most formidable, according to the Israelis, the most formidable um, Kassam formation, um, and they're the ones who were responsible for the Shijia, um, the Battle of Shajaiya which the Israelis um, in 2014. Uh, all but ended the ground invasion. They moved in from the east. Shajay is um, on the far east side of Gaza City. So it's the first thing that you encounter if you come from the east um, to invade uh, westward into Gaza. Um, And so Shajay was where their forces went in and were attacked by, a 360-degree ambush using tunnels, using buildings. The Israelis believed, um, according to their soldiers uh, who testified after, that they believed that they were going to have 600 dead soldiers if they didn't withdraw, and which they did. The Israelis withdrew under shell fire, um, and it was one of the most brutal massacres in the history of the palestine Israel-Palestine conflict up um, until this last 60 days. Um, but um, a very important battalion commander, Shajaya, he was in charge of that uh, battle. But also uh, on the other side of the border, he was in charge of the Nahul Az uh, attack where Palestinian Qassam fighters used tunnels to come up um, and overrun an Israeli base um, and attempt to capture soldiers in 2014. And also he was part of um, the October 7th attack. And so we haven't heard from Kassam that he was assassinated. And then we get within 72 hours, this footage of a burning Israeli armored personnel carrier. So that's a personnel carrier. That's not a tank. You can see that the mounted machine gun on top of it that indicates that it's a troop carrier. So we're not clear what what happened, where the soldiers are. It's clear that those uh, fighters had a position Uh, right there so it doesn't appear there was any evacuation happening Um, and that's why in that previous earlier in the clip it's interesting to see that we see the spotter um, say the vehicles are coming um, and then uh, he says don't don't shoot it's a bulldozer let's wait and hit the armored personnel see him put his arm down there he's about to shoot and the spotter says don't do it, it's a bulldozer. And so um, we discussed this previously on live streams, but they operate in units, um, usually sets of two, um, uh, armored personnel carrier and a tank. And then the bulldozer is leading the way. Um, This is the beginnings of the invasion uh, in Shajayia because the Israelis have avoided Shajayia because of the ghosts of Shajayia. And also, um, according to some Israeli sources, that they believed that that's who would have the prisoners. Um, that's who would have the Israeli prisoners. And so they were involved in the prisoner exchange. And we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but that's what happened in 2014 as well. The uh, Qassam leaders who negotiated the ceasefire were then assassinated by Israel um, as soon as the ceasefire ended, presumably using information that was derived from Um, from those negotiations Um, and I think we talked about with the prisoner exchange that the prisoner exchange that happened uh, last week was uh, significantly um, was very risky logistically to be involved and to be nimble and to be picking uh, who's on which list and whatnot um, is a vulnerability for the Palestinian resistance and they've been unable to reach um, Farhat for the the 13 years that he's been battalion commander of the Shuja'iya Battalion. And before that, um, when he was uh, a part of the rocket program that developed the Qassam rocket from um, a short range uh, rocket to one that can touch almost anywhere um, in, in historic Palestine. Um, and so we're seeing, we don't know we're putting these pieces together for, our listeners, um, cause we don't know, we haven't, Kasam hasn't acknowledged his death. I don't suppose that that's what they just spectacularly did, um, in that video. Um, but there's no, there's nothing that says we did this for Farhat. That's just a little tiny piece that you hear him, the fighter saying in that video. Um, it wasn't focused on, um, Um, beyond the fact that...
4: This is their daily work. This is all in a day's work for them.
6: It's all in a day's work. And it's being turned around within... So they're not holding these videos for weeks and showing the best ofs. This is a a direct response to his assassination on Sunday night. Um, And by Wednesday morning, we're getting videos of them taking out armored personnel carriers. And the personnel carriers in flames right in front of the position that these fighters have 60 days into the war. They have complete freedom of movement in these areas that, uh, you know, some of these international uh, monitors, uh, war monitors that are making these maps of where Israel is operating or where they control. And it's just clearly they have no, the, the, the longer, this war goes on, the more capacity the resistance has, not the less, not less. They're still able to fire rockets at the same rate. We can see from their uh, field reports um, that there's more action today. They're using more Yassins, um, they're firing more rockets, um, all both, you know, both made indigenously. So we don't even know, this, this is another thing we don't know, we don't know how many rockets they have. We don't know how many Yassins they have. But everything that we've shown is that despite this brutal massacre and targeting of civilians, that the resistance is still capable of functioning and answering something. Because the Farhat thing, the, where I got the original information was from the Israelis, because the Israelis were very excited about getting him. Um, because basically, this is uh, you know Shujaiya 2014, was the kind of battle that um, redefined the Israeli army. Um, It redefined their armored vehicles because they no longer could go into urban areas in their old armored vehicles. They needed to rush these Namor uh, heavily armored, uh, armored personnel carriers into action um, because they said the previous ones weren't good enough. And then we see these brand new, beautiful vehicles that Israel, uh, you know, talked about for a decade. Um, in combat action in flames.
4: And they, um, they probably still have that new car smell to them. But uh, w- one thing I wanted to to show, um, Tamara, if we can show that last tweet I sent you, uh, the, the, the most recent one I sent you that I thought was very funny, uh, which includes the screenshot from the video we just watched. And I thought this was a very clever thing. Somebody did comparing the uh, Israeli or, or this video that we just watched with the Israeli propaganda uh, and I, I just thought this was very funny. Of course on the left you see there the, the still we just saw of the Qassam fighter posing in front of the burning Israeli vehicle and on the right we see Daniel Hagari, the Israeli military spokesperson in the uh, basement of the Rontisi hospital a few weeks ago. Pointing at the wall calendar and claiming that, claiming falsely that it shows um, the names of Hamas fighters. So uh, that that's just an example of how these things are playing on social media. That the Qassam videos are giving a lot of credibility to what the resistance is saying because the resistance will put out on their Telegram channel, they will say, today we did this, we did that, the other, we attacked a tank here, we attacked an armored personnel carrier there. And then invariably, the next day or a day or two later, they will post video showing that that's exactly what they did. So there's a high degree of credibility. And I think something that struck me, uh, John, about the video we just watched that is significant because, as we've noted in the previous videos over the last 60 days, you do sometimes see a clear hit uh, of the Israeli tank or the Israeli armored vehicle, but often you don't. Often it's not very clear. And the reason, as you explained, is because they have to get out of there. They fire their shot and they have to move because the return fire presumably can come within seconds. This time, for whatever reason, This, perhaps because of the positions they were in, they were able to show the burning armored vehicles with a clarity we hadn't seen before. And the other thing I noticed, because sometimes people will say, well, you know, maybe these explosions are just the the shell hitting the outside of the vehicle. But in this video, we saw very clear secondary explosions very clear and big secondary explosions. And what are the secondary explosions? That's when you hit the armored vehicle or the tank, and the ammunition that's inside that vehicle, because these are, of course, fighting vehicles, they're carrying shells, or they're carrying large amounts of ammunition, that explodes, and that's when you get the secondary explosion. And I think we see several very clear secondary explosions in this video, John, if, if I'm correct. So we can assume that that is what's happening in a lot of the other cases where we don't necessarily see it because the fighter has to... Um, get out of there. You know, if they're standing in the street, sometimes we see them going around the corner and they're standing exposed in the street. They fire their shot. They're not going to stand around waiting to take photos or take video of what happens. They're going to fire and get out of there. And we're lucky to see anything uh, that we, um, we, we, uh, we do see. So, I don't know, John, if you want to say more about that, but I wanted to talk about some of the impact I think this is having on Israeli psychology and Israeli propaganda. But uh, you know, you may have more that you want to tell us about this before we do that.
6: Well, we have another round of jelly beans too.
4: Okay. All right. Well, let, let this let's... other
6: one that pre that predated yeah. this one um, that showed um, a K- Kassam. That showed a, a, an Israeli camp, um, presumably, that they had set up, um, believing that they um, were safe and they tilled the top soil. We've seen a lot of um, IDF videos um, when they take over the area, bomb the houses, um, and then they're tilling the soil essentially with their bulldozers because they're so paranoid about undergr- underground explosives um, and tunnels. Um, and they show in this uh, video from earlier in the week, um, they actually come up uh, from the ground with presumably some sort of periscope um, inside the Israeli camp, using the tunnel to access. Um, again, we don't know. we're 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 speculating on on this stuff. We'll have to catch the documentaries that come out over the next decade because these fighters all have incredible stories to tell.
4: But this um, video, John, th- this came out. Uh, was it yesterday or the day before? The last yeah, couple so of this days. Yeah, keep... so But uh, pre- prior to that, Kassam had issued a statement saying that they did this, and saying that they, maybe, maybe you, people already know, but maybe you want to tell the story. We don't see everything they say they did in in the video, but what we see in the video gives a huge amount of credibility to what they say they did. Maybe you want to talk us through it. Yeah. So they said, this is the thing
6: again, that once the longer the Israelis are there inside Gaza, the more capacity the resistance has to hit them, not less. Um, And so this is a camp that the Israelis believe that they're safe in. And this camera comes up in these are Israeli army positions. So you could see in in each of these tents, and that's that sand around the outside has been plowed, uh, bulldozed to create berms. So this is inside, they believe, their safe zone inside Gaza. And what Qassam is showing here is that they clearly have the ability to penetrate inside uh, the Israeli camps. So, again, these videos are just tips of the iceberg. Of what's going on? Because did they have all the periscopes have cameras? Do all the fighters have GoPros? No, these are just suggesting um, at what is happening all over um, the Gaza Strip. And so uh, on the weekend, Kasam told us. Um, usually, their field reports are are very specific and um, limited. But on the weekend, I don't know if their editor was away or what, but they produced this multiple paragraph story. Um, that described them uh, monitoring the the enemy's camp um, and then setting it up to place explosives in a circle around the camp. And they described detonating the explosives and then fighters emerging from tunnels to attack in a complex attack. You set off the initial stage, the soldiers scatter, you attack the soldiers that scatter, and then you fire artillery Um, mortars to protect the fighters so that they can withdraw back into the tunnel and get home safely. So the fighters are returning home safely. And um, yeah, we we joked about it in our meeting that uh, somebody had a really amazing story to tell by the basis of this story, because Qassam says one Mujahideen um, uh, advances as the Israelis are scattering. And you read that, and when we read, I was cautious of that one because it was like, this, this almost seems like it's, it's almost too much. To, it's impossible to sort of imagine this happening. Um, and then Kassam, a couple of days later, puts out a video that shows that not only was that possible, but that that would be the least that would happen in that circumstance. If you have an attack tunnel underneath an Israeli position, That tunnel can itself become a bomb. Um, And so that is, again, happening at all of these camps. And the longer Israel stays in these camps, the more capacity the resistance has to hit them, not less. Um, And so the longer this goes on, um, and we need to keep both of these parts in it, that Israel needs to show a victory, but also they cannot remain in the places that they're saying that they're getting their victories from because they will get defeated. And so there's a balance between how Israel withdraws from this conflict with the specter of victory for their own people and the realities of the continuing guerrilla war, putting Palestinians in a better position to resist, not in a worse position. Um, And so when you see the capacity um, to use, I mean, it, Israel probably prepared that space for multiple days before they moved their troops safely in there. Um, so do the, the, the questions that that video raises are, is that position already there? Or did they actually dig it? Because they can dig attack tunnels fast enough um, to, 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 to actually react to where the camp is set up. But also, there's such a tunnel network underneath Gaza that there's no way the Israelis can know because they don't know. They haven't mapped the tunnels. And as we know, the tunnels are a spider web. So even mapping them, it's not clear how you would even do that if you unless you had the overall map. Um, So, again, it's a video. There's nothing in that video. You don't see anyone killed in the video. There's no reason um, to have that video taken off air. Um, it's much uh, more interesting um, and creative than what the Israelis show in their videos that CNN will loop. Um, CNN will take the day's worth of IDF videos and stitch them together and play them on loop for their audience. Airstrikes that kill, you know, dropping buildings. They'll say this is an airstrike in Shajaiya. And they're showing something that we've seen from the United Nations reports Uh, or from hospital reports, killed 50 people, killed four generations of a family. Um, And they're showing it on loop on CNN, and that's perfectly fine. But if we show a video of a a periscope coming up through the ground and looking at the Israelis, they'll take your whole two-hour show off the air.
4: And also, CNN is not showing any of this. Uh, it's not, you know, this is not appearing in mainstream Western media, which is part of the propaganda to diminish the military achievements of the resistance and the military nature of this conflict, which from the very beginning, as Asa said, was an attack on the Israeli military. Primarily, although they, they did attack the settlements, which are themselves militarized encampments along the border. And Israel's propaganda effort to, to claim that this was you know mass rapes and just an attack on civilians for the sake of, of, of bloodshed. Because these videos show how focused Hamas is on military resistance and also how good they are at it. Because that, that's not a message that, that can be uh, permitted to, to get out into the world. But I just wanted, uh, I, I know we're coming up to, to our time here, but I think these videos, John, are having a, even though they're not being shown on CNN or the BBC or the New York Times, they are very present on social media and they're having an impact and and Israel is aware of that impact. And I want to show you something that came across my uh, Twitter or X timeline today that was actually a promoted tweet. That means that the, it was, the, the people who put it up paid to promote it for people to see it. So uh, can we run that? Uh, can we show that tweet and run the little video that's in it, uh, Tamara?
6: just caught Hamas faking their own propaganda. I was scrolling through their official telegram channel and I saw this video. It looked pretty bad so I rewound it and then hit pause and accidentally landed on this frame. It didn't seem right. So I downloaded the video and then imported it into my editing software and it's clearly two videos spliced together. This building is nowhere to be seen in the original scene. It gets better. The original video was posted by the IDF on their Twitter. Here's the building. They then deleted this section until this explosion. These guys are such amateurs. And yet, somehow, they've got the entire
4: world fooled. All right. So, this uh, uh, video was put up by something called the Israel Advocacy Movement, which is a... Uh, Israel <laughs> lobby group. And of course, you're supposed to just think it's some guy who. Yeah, he's just
0: some regular guy. He's
4: just a regular guy. Cool
0: beanie and a, right. and a hoodie. Yeah, he's, regular he's, on, guy. he's on his
4: way to <laughs> you know, the record store to brush yeah. and he decided to scroll through some Hamas telegram channels. Well, when I saw this, of course, I, I looked at it very closely. And I can tell you, first of all, that that's not an official Hamas Telegram channel. We we monitor the Hamas Telegram channels, and although it uses the logo, there's lots and lots of um, uh, channels on Telegram claiming to be Hamas channels that are clearly not. Uh, they're just reposting things from from here and there. This is one of them, uh, and the the other thing is that that video that he claims to debunk is not a video that was ever published by Hamas. It, it, it doesn't have their logo. It didn't appear on any of their official Telegram channels. It's not a Qassam video like the ones we just watched. It's just some video that some random person made and put on Telegram, and the and, and then this Israel lobby group is claiming to debunk it. Because they want to cast doubt in people's minds that the genuine Qassam videos, like the ones that we just saw, are somehow fake. And I think, to me, that's a sign that, this, um, <clears throat> that these videos and this reality is starting to filter through and bother them. It, people are starting to notice the, the Israeli army isn't actually that good. As we've said, of course... If it comes to murdering women and children, they are the go-to people. Nobody does it better than them. World experts at barbarism and savagery against civilians. But when it comes to actual fighting against uh, other soldiers, they they're, they're not very good. So I just thought that was funny that they are uh, they made that fake debunking. I mean. We yeah. debunk things all the time. But here they actually, we debunked their debunking. I mean, I, I don't know. The guy stuff. in that video,
1: his name is Joseph Cohen. He's a, uh, a Zionist from London. Uh, I wrote about him briefly in my book. And uh, actually, there's a lot of people in the chat who recognize him because what he does is he goes along to sometimes two Palestinian solidarity demonstrations, smaller ones, with a GoPro. And he tries to sort of provoke people into saying things that he can then sort of twist in YouTube clips later. But the thing about this guy is, as you were kind of getting at, he's not just some guy. He actually has, I don't know exactly the ins and outs of his financial arrangements, but he does have links to the State of Israel. He has been to the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, so-called Digital Conference, uh, in Jerusalem. So like a lot of Prairie Israel lobby groups, he's not this grassroots uh, effort that he claims to be.
0: Spectacular. Um, well, before we wrap up, uh, I do believe we have our friend Ahmed Asamak back uh, just for a minute or so. Ahmed, can you, can you hear us now? Oh, now you're muted. Oh, no. Okay, <laughs> Hold on. Hold on, let's unmute you. Okay, um, I think you have to unmute yourself. Yes. Oh, there you I'm are. So sorry, okay, it good. seems
3: I had a, a, a problem with the internet, so sorry for it's that. It's
0: okay. It's okay. Um, I yeah. I, I I think before we got cut off, um, we were we were just you, you kind of talking about the just like the un unending nightmare uh, that that you and your family and your community is having to go through, but also. You know the how ali was 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 talking about also how we're we're also not losing hope in the future for a liberated Palestine and being able to rebuild your house and being able to rebuild your city and your country um after zionism and and so and I'm
4: hoping yeah. I'm going to get an invitation to your wedding
1: Ahmed. <laughs> Because we had a lot of people in the chat saying you should get married.
0: (laughs) Exactly, I love cake. I love weddings. They're so fun. So yeah, I can't wait for that. But but when you by the way, a lot of
3: people, a lot of people in Gaza, (laughs) yeah, uh, have married recently, even during the war, Mm. but they didn't, of course, uh, throw a wedding party.
4: We actually have a story about that. We, yeah. we actually yeah. have a story yeah. about that at the Electronic Intifada. I, maybe we can uh, we will we'll be able to show it by uh, by our colleague uh, Rueda Amer, who's in in yes. Gaza and has who, who's continuing to write. And she writes that people in Gaza are still getting married, of course, without the celebrations. But it's a reminder that life goes on. And and of course, we talked about much earlier in this horrifying genocide the fact that. 50,000 women are, are uh, pregnant in Gaza. And uh, so every day children are being born into a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. But they are being born and life will continue. Li- life has to continue. And that's what we owe to all those who have uh, been murdered in this, this Holocaust is that life and hope should continue because the enemy wants people to give up hope and to give up on life
3: the last yes exactly Ali. Uh, the last thing I'd like to share I've talked to many of my friends recently thankfully there are some areas now in Gaza uh, where there is uh, an access to the internet most of them now are scared to death of Starvation, not from bombing. And my brother yesterday went to El Puraj popular market and to Innusayrat popular market, which are uh, two of the biggest camps in the middle area, refugee camps in the middle area, just to buy uh, food. And he didn't find anything, literally anything. Just he told me, Ahmed, I just I I just, um, I had found only cleaning tools and material and he went back and he went uh, home empty handed, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think that's what people are are dealing with and it's it's unspeakable and it's unbearable and um, we are all I'm wishing that it it ends immediately um, and that the reconstruction can begin. Um, Ahmed Asamak, uh, we look forward to having you back on the live stream um, and uh, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us again on, on the live stream today, my friend.
4: Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you so much for Thank having me Thank you so much, guys.
0: Thank you and uh, Ali before we wrap up I know that you have some important information about supporting uh, our contributors and the work that we're doing
4: yes just a quick update Uh, as I mentioned previously this is the month December when we every year raise most of the money that we need to keep the electronic intifada going uh, for most of the year and for our new viewers and new friends, uh, we are not just this live stream. We are also the website that we've also shown. But there it is where we are reporting. Uh, in fact, we are very proud that uh, like Amir, who we just Amir, uh, whose story we just showed, like Ahmed Al-Samak, he's in Dublin now. But for the past couple of years, he was reporting from Gaza for us and we are publishing every day reports from the ground i see in the comments a lot of people are saying what's the situation on the ground you can read that directly from people who are living it at mm. the electronic intifada and that is the work that i'm most proud of that we are able to provide this platform for the reporters and writers and photographers in gaza people like Mohammed Assad whose videos we watched earlier in this live stream. And this is all supported by people like you. We pay all our writers and all our contributors, including those in Gaza. And uh, so that's one of the things that your support helps us. So you can go to the Electronic Intifada and click Donate Now. Uh, And the other thing equally important is click on that get updates link there and sign up for our, for our email list. You'll get our daily newsletter, which contains links to all of our articles. You'll also be notified when we're going to have live streams so you don't miss any. And we know that not everybody can make a, a financial contribution and that's perfectly okay. We're only asking you to do so if you can. If you can't, what we want you to do we want everyone to do is to share the work the articles the live streams the videos send them to friends and family post them on your social media we want this work this this reporting to be free and available to everyone so when you make a gift you're helping uh, us to share this information with with everyone. We don't have a paywall. We will never have a paywall. This work will always be free and available to the world. That's our mission uh, as an independent nonprofit publication. So just to say again, thank you to everyone for all your support, for viewing today, for reading, for sharing. We just cannot do this without you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ali. And yes, we cannot do this without you. Thank you once again to all of our viewers and our listeners. Be sure to like and subscribe uh, to this YouTube channel if you're watching on YouTube. Um, And please share the stories that you read on the Electronic Intifada. It really helps. Uh, On behalf of uh, Ali, Asa, and John, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman, and we will be back with you next time. Thanks, everyone.
4: Bye.